Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we climb the mountain of IT news. We've got stories this week from Nokia, Dell, HPE, VMware, and more. We're sponsored in part by Linode. You can cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. You can develop, deploy, and scale your apps faster and easier. And network break listeners can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit. You can find all the details at linode.com slash networkbreak. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. And after the news, we have a Tech Bytes podcast with sponsor Fortinet about networking and security and why the network still matters in the age of cloud. Uh, last but not least, check out the Packet Pushers Human Infrastructure Newsletter. It's delivered to your inbox every Thursday. We scour the internet for nerdy tech blogs, IT news and memes, plus commentary and analysis. It's free to sign up at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. You can also read all the back issues there. And we never share your email with anyone ever. All right, let's jump into the news. Nokia has announced it will provide a chassis-based 400 gig router to Microsoft data centers. The hardware is going to run the Sonic Network OS instead of Nokia's SR Linux NOS. I think this is really, really interesting in lots of different dimensions that Nokia has been selected, you know, the data center, which is, of course, um, the latest iteration of their to Ethernet switching platform, which they've been working on for a very long time and iterating it quite successfully. Um, so it's the chassis-based interconnect router supporting 400 gigs. So this is the premium thing that's going into these data centers. This isn't, mm -hmm. you know, top of rack switches or spines. This is 400 gig right at the top of the tier two. This would have had super high focus by Microsoft. And um, although Nokia will be supplying some fixed form factor and other things for Microsoft network applications, right. according to the press release. Um, I, but I think the key here is, of course, is while Nokia is providing the hardware, Azure is still using the Sonic. So to the sense that Microsoft cares much less about the hardware, perhaps, than they do the Sonic, because the Sonic is what talks to their orchestration engine that configures right. all of these switches. So as long as you've got a bunch of tests that say, yeah, this Sonic works on that piece of hardware does the hardware really matter? So for them to win that means their hardware matters, if that makes sense. Did you get that sort of reading? Yeah, I mean, I think it highlights the reason Microsoft has developed Sonic in the first place and why it's pushing it, because they can get that hardware diversity, you know, whichever vendor is the first to get to whatever milestone uh, performance-wise they need. Uh, if they support Sonic, then Microsoft can buy that hardware while still getting the operational benefits of having that Sonic NOS that all their tools work with. Yeah, and you know, and when you look at that from a competitive situation, Broadcom and Arista must be piffed, right? Because they didn't win. <laughs> I'm sure they're not saying, right? yes. <laughs> so Arista would normally be the supplier in the frame for this. Arista's had a long-term uh, supplier arrangement with uh, Azure for this type of technology, the chassis-based. Mm -hmm. uh, NVIDIA slash Mellanox has been very successful around certain parts of the top of rack and certain parts of the switching. And we know Arista's white box has been very popular. And I know also that a lot of the top of rack stuff is actually just commodity edge core or act on whatever. Um, but this is the premium stuff. So a bit of a kick in the teeth for Arista in the sense that they've been a key supplier and they didn't make it for the 400 gig. That doesn't mean that Arista's lost. There'll be another chance, you know, for the next data center build or whatever, no doubt. But at least Microsoft's willing to stand up and talk about it, which is something that you don't always see. No, it's not. And I think it's also great that Nokia is talking about it because they have been putting a lot of effort around SR Linux and pushing that very heavily as a differentiator, but they're also willing to say, yeah, we'll sell you the hardware if you want to run another NOS on top of it, hmm. which makes sense for them because they want to sell that big box. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. And like, just to sort of round this out, Juniper and Cisco uh, both, of course, talk about sales of, of their products to cloud companies. My belief is that Juniper is largely selling chassis-based routers and Cisco is obviously selling some of its router equipment, but not much. The vendors don't like 
Cisco's operating systems very much in the high end of the market, as best as I can tell. Uh, but Cisco has been selling some of its white box products. So they've been selling some of their um, equipment that runs the Silicon One, so switches and routers, and then making them compatible for Sonic and providing the support. But not a lot, like Cisco's done about between 30 and 100 million annually, which is almost none. Like right. Dell does a deal like that every week and Cisco's, you know, barely sort of ticking over on this sort of thing, but they are starting to grow their business. They are starting to get traction. And I see this, you know, as we said before, like the real value for these companies is in the software, the Sonic that runs on top and the, and the orchestration engines and the services above it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the sales of hardware are important. At the end of the day, the hardware is the most important thing. So we know Arista announced Sonic support back in 2020, so they were quick to move on this. I wonder if others, Cisco, Juniper, others are going to say, maybe we're missing opportunities by not embracing Sonic if we're going to start to see more multi-vendor network OS support here. Mm. Well, we talked about Sonic substantially, I said, last week, and we had some people contact us around that and say, yeah. do I really think Sonic's going to be a thing? I and my sort of thoughts there, and I wrote some notes, and I'll I'll hopefully get a blog post out. Is that at this at this point in time, I see sort of Sonic is a bit like Linux back in the two thousand era, two thousand two thousand two. It was really difficult to use. It was very complex. It was unreliable, but it was free to buy. Um, and compared to the proprietary solutions, which were expensive and unreliable and closed, at least free expensive to own, open and unreliable is sort of like two out of four, right? right. <laughs> Whereas what the proprietary solutions are, they're often unstable, they're often unreliable. The tech support's not what it used to be. We we hear a lot of feedback about, you know, how bad the tech support's become. And in a practice, you should not want tech support. The product should work. You shouldn't have to access tech support. These products are mature. They've been around for 20 years now. Um, they shouldn't be unstable. They shouldn't be unreliable in 2022 is my view. So I think Sonic is sort of positioned in that stage where Linux was in the early to mid-2000s where it's not perfect. I did spend some time over on GitHub having a bit of a poke at the feature set, and it's mm -hmm. starting to approach parity with – that is not to say that it is. It's a long way from you know the sort of feature richness and the complexity of what a, mod, you know, a full vendor solution is. Right. But – you know, back in 2002, we were setting up Linux to do email and DNS, and then look what happened. So mm -hmm. I sort of, I would position it to you, you know, when the comp competition was Microsoft Windows and MySQL, you know, Windows NT SQL Server and all that sort of stuff, people would be paying really high prices for those licenses and then stuck with sub-rate products that didn't perform very well. And the free version sort of creeps its way in, if you know you want to like. So I think it's there. I think it's possible. I mean, the fact that Sonic has Microsoft behind it and it's key to Microsoft's Azure mm. uh, backbone, uh, then yes, Sonic is going to have a life. Whether it starts to have a footprint mm. outside of Microsoft, I think we'll see. And that actually ties into our next story. So let's move on to that. Uh, mm. Dell announced version 4.0 of its enterprise version of the Sonic Network OS, and it's designed for the enterprise. Um, it includes Dell support and a Dell developed CLI. Yeah, so this is interesting in the sense that Dell has been supporting Sonic about for a, quite a while now. And I think there's a few things here. Obviously, it's got the operating system that it got from Force 10 when it acquired Force 10 a decade or more ago. Mm -hmm. And that operating system is a more traditional Ethernet with routing in it sort of thing, whereas Sonic is very much cloud optimized and orchestration optimized. And 
Dell has been producing an enterprise version of the Sonic distribution for, I think, 18 months now. We did a podcast on it a long time ago where they sort of announced it. I think it was sort of mid-2020, Drew. Does that sound right? Yeah, it sounds about right. Mm. Maybe maybe twenty. And so, yeah. yeah, and they've been taking the the you know the current version, packaging it up, and then sell it, you know, providing support and packaging it into its own solutions. And I think that means that over time, Dell is sort of hoping that that will become the operating system that will go with its um, portfolio of products. So we're seeing Dell talk a lot about its Apex solution, which is roughly equivalent to the HPE GreenLake. This idea that you go and rent a package of solutions and then they'll deliver you a predetermined set of hardware uh-huh. and then you run it as is. And in this particular case, uh, Dell's talking a lot about using Sonic for retailers here. So they feel that some of the features that have been included here are for this, um, or what I call surveillance retailing. You know, when you go into the store and there's cameras watching you and yeah. tracking your every move and everything you pick up off the shelf and every time you scratch your butt, you get a minus one social point or something. I don't know. But that's what it's for. <laughs> Dell's got a big uh, big business unit built around producing hardware solutions and, and software so that when you go into a retail environment, you get the same sort of tracking that you do online. And that's what this is packaged for this time around. So. Yeah, they say new features include support for data center interconnects, so that's on the data center side, but they also are touting it for branch and edge locations, and I think, yes, it is part of that uh, a retail environment where they want to do customer analysis of, of in-store traffic to see where folks are lingering and how they move through a store and all that stuff. Yes, customer surveillance, for sure. Mm. I think it's interesting in the sense that does Sonic become, I mean, even if it's Dell, which is not normally a networking vendor, does Dell double down on Sonic? And, you know, we've talked a bit about Sonic becoming the operating system on the DPU. Well, if that's the case, then Dell then has an operating system on the switch core and on the DPUs at the edge. And then it's just a case of what apps you put on top. Is that where we're headed? Who knows? Yeah, I feel like, you know, Dell, I I don't get a strong sense for how they feel about networking. To me, I guess Mm. based on the way they position it, it feels like it's a sort of, yeah, we've got that if you want it. They're not pushing Mm. it as hard as they do servers and storage and so on. But if they are going to be in networking, I think as a strategy, drafting off Sonic makes sense because Microsoft and others are supporting it. So they sort of get all of the features and capabilities that will come out, you know, in the main branch and then they can do what they want with it um, without having to put as much developer resources into it as they would their own NAS. Mm. Yeah, I think so. I think Dell's problem is that networking's never been a focus. I suspect it comes right the way up from the top. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not what the end. To some extent, Dell was partnered with Cisco in the past and doesn't want to step on Cisco's toes and it sells a lot of Cisco and all that sort of stuff. Um, I will take, I want to, I, before we close this one out, I want to flag one thing. The Dell press release was appalling. Just, did you, <laughs> it just didn't say anything. It, it was. Really it was didn't shock- say much. It was shocking. Yes. It didn't say. It just says we have got Sonic version four, and it's specialized for retail. But what? Like, what is it about it that makes it specialized for retail? Does it, you know, support MLAG all of a sudden? Does it have some sort of remote integrate? It's nothing. It just there's a whole lot of bloviation about something, something, and then it says specifically for retail and branch use. This enables a single unit. It's, it's horrible. And no amount of digging will um, that I spent. I spent quite a few hours digging around. No idea what features are included that make it specifically released for fee- for retail and branch use. So whatever. It, 
if you're going to write a skimpy press release, at least have a link to a blog that maybe has more technical details or a data sheet or a white paper for folks who want to sort of dig into it a little bit. I understand you can't get into everything in a press mm. release, but yeah, at least make it easy for folks to find the information you have. That would be Yeah, if your press release has to have 2,000 words to meet corporate standards, fine. But <laughs> that's what this reads like. <laughs> yeah. I think the other thing I wanted to say is this, this whole Sonic discussion, I think for the enterprise specifically, where folks really want good work and effort is around that orchestration, automation, and management layer. Uh, you could package that into, I guess, software-defined networking, where mm. the network OS doesn't really matter so much as long as it's stable and has the features you need. And I think that's where the industry at a very slow pace is actually headed. Um, mm. And so all the talk about which NOS is sort of, you know, not really important in the long run. Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, we don't talk much about NOSs other as long as it's Linux and it's containerized. Um, which is kind of like table stakes for most operating NOSes these days. Yes. Um, you know, the ability, not that everybody puts a container on, but that sort of the general consensus is that running a NOS with containers makes more sense than the alternatives. Um, it's about the SDN, you know, the software defined part that does the, the configuration and the operations. And yeah. I think I said that particularly over the last four or five years, that's where the market's heading. Um it doesn't really matter. Sonic on the switch is fine. You know, tools like Juniper's Abstra says, yeah, we're happy with any render right. hardware and you can run Sonic on that or you can run Juniper. We'll just, we'll run with any vendor. We just want to sell you the software that's on top as a priority. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Sticking with uh, networking software, RT Brick, they make routing software for the carrier market. They've announced uh, that their latest software version doubles the number of subscribers up to 75,000 that could be supported on a single switch. All right, so not networking normal. This is telco slash carrier slash service yeah. provider networking. Um, RT Brick is a European company with a modern NOS for a disaggregated network. There's more of this network operating system. It is Linux-based. It's got apps in containers, so all of the routing engines are a container with the apps running inside of the container, so you can do all that sort of stuff. Um, and, of course, they've got a full suite of configuration options and telemetry, so you've got all the things that you would expect in its distribution. Now, if I remember rightly, I've been seeing the name RT Brick around for a long time, and they are a European company, not an, uh, a, um, an American company. Um, so it's, uh, it's unusual to see them. And the thing that caught my eye here is that broadband network gateways are a fairly unique niche in the industry, and what they've obviously done is decided to develop that app that terminates the L2TP tunnels or whatever it is they're using for BNGs these days um, inside of a Broadcom QMAN 2C chipset on a white box switch. And I think that's unusual, and I just wanted to flag that. All right, yeah, we've got the link in the show notes if you want to learn more about it. Hmm. Just, just, just an odd thing. You didn't think white box would be supporting broadband <laughs> network gateways, and it was not something I expected. Nice to be surprised sometimes. All right, moving on, uh, HPE, they've announced HPE RAN Automation. This is a cloud-based service from HPE designed to help service providers operate disaggregated and virtualized radio access networks, or RANs. Uh, the Open RAN movement is an alternative to those proprietary single-vendor RAN stacks, um, but then disaggregation has its own challenges. There's management and orchestration of diverse hardware, software, and virtualized network functions. So the goal of HPE's RAN Automation cloud service is to streamline all of that management and orchestration. Talked a lot about OpenRAN um, as a tool for building the 5G edge, so you can build POPs for 5G. Uh, we're seeing a lot of companies out there trying to promote the fact that they're building an OpenRAN product. So in this case, this appears to me to be a GreenLake thing, Drew, where um, they're going to host an OpenRAN platform in the cloud. 
And then I think what HP is hoping is that other people will come along and license that or resell that into the edge. So if you want to become a 5G provider of some sort, you might use HP's Open RAN to provide you with the service and a, a combination of the cloud-based stuff as well as the stuff that happens at the edge of the of the telco network. Yeah, they're definitely chasing communication service providers with this. I didn't actually see GreenLake mentioned in either the press release or the blog, but I, I may have just missed it. Um, but it is being offered as a managed service from HPE. Uh, they didn't. They say it's a multi-vendor solution. They didn't mention any partners. Uh, the only thing they mentioned is that it works with HPE's ProLiant Telco service. So I think there's still more to come here. Yeah, this is a hard to read because they've got a thin gray font on a gray background, but... <laughs> it's kind of hard to read this stuff. Um, I think my feeling is that this is the first release of the product, or they're announcing it, mm-hmm. and then this will go to GreenLake once the integration has been done. That's that would be a guess, but yeah. Yeah, they say the service isn't GA yet, but there are demos and early trials available. So mm-hmm. if you're interested, you can reach out to HPE. Yeah, my guess. That's what my guess is. It's coming. Maybe. Yeah. More to come. <laughs> what a come. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Linode. You can cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. You can develop, deploy, and scale your modern apps faster and easier. And whether you're developing a personal project or managing large workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. You can get started on a Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Network Break. And you can find all the details at linode.com slash networkbreak. Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing, regardless of location. So you can choose the data center nearest to you. You also get 24 by seven by 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of plan size. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, and you can use your $100 in credit on S3 compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes and more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash network break and click on the create free account button to get started. That's linode.com slash network break. Back to the news. Uh, US ISP Comcast says it has successfully tested hollow core fiber optic cabling. Hollow core uses air rather than glass as a transmission medium. And Comcast says the data travels up to 150% faster with 33% lower latency through hollow core versus traditional fiber optics. A lot of people don't understand that when light propagates through a vacuum, it's at one speed propagates through air at another speed. And when it's inside a fiber optic, it actually propagates at another speed. We talk about you can't go faster than the speed of light, but what we often forget is that the speed of light actually changes depending on what the light is traveling through. And the premise of this technology is that they're making a glass fiber where you actually have the glass around the edge. So as the laser signal propagates down, there's an air in the core, so there's no glass. It's not glass mm-hmm. that you're guiding it down. The reflections are built from this uh, design where the glass is around a, an air core, so like there's a spherical air, and then around it is all these microfibers that actually then reflect the signal down. It's kind of hard to explain. You need a little graphic, and when you look at the graphic, it'll go like, oh, that makes sense. And uh, there are links, of course, in the show notes if you're interested in this. Uh, so what they're saying here is that because the speed of light travels 50% faster in air than it does in glass, we can reduce the latency of networks. And they're claiming 150% performance improvement. However, for obvious reasons, if you're making a fiber that is a hollow air core, is it more fragile? Is it harder to install? So the fact that Comcast has bought this and is actually deploying it, at least in a significant trial, enough to make a press release about, suggests that this may actually be working, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, they say they connected two locations in Philadelphia and sent data over a 40-kilometer link, uh, and they are exploring opportunities to deploy Holocore in, quote, 
select core and access network deployments, uh, though they didn't provide a timeline. So this does sound like it's still in the lab stages. Yeah, it is. I, re- I was watching a, a talk from 2022. They're talking about 0.22 dB loss per kilometer or 0.3, which means that 40 kilometers is probably realistically the longest run that they can make. Uh-huh. And I imagine that there's like um, much more controlled installation, like bending this, it might fracture more easily or, you know, it might be less resilient to like a solid glass core that's arranged in sheath. We know exactly how long that lasts and what it, you know, what vibration and how to deploy it safely and, you know, spool radiuses and all those sorts of things. And I imagine that there's some stuff here to be proven out over time. It looks to me like Comcast is planning on using this for 800 gig backbones because that ability to have less latency over longer distances actually means you just get more for your money mm-hmm. and potentially you may even need less fiber over time. So it'll be interesting to work and see how this works. But for me, it's just interesting to see an innovation happening at the physical layer. That is, you can't make better glass except to make the glass core lower costs or out of different compounds, right? But in this case, you're looking at a completely revolutionary. So why use glass at all? Why not just put air in there and shoot the laser down that and get it reflecting, you know, getting the angle of incidence by putting the glass around the air core? Fascinating, fascinating way to think about it. It's been under development for about 10 years, so it's not like it got invented Silicon Valley style six months ago. So it's actually been around for a while. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, I don't tend to think of ISPs as sort of driving innovation. So it is interesting to see that Comcast is getting behind this and presumably they see potential benefits uh, at least for their core and access networks. I don't necessarily anticipate them running uh, hollow core out to residential areas, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, there's some interesting things in here. Um, they're talking about no dispersion compensation is needed because it's propagating in air and because mm-hmm. the tolerances inside the core are so narrow, you don't actually need to get dispersion compensation, which is really important in optical networks over long haul. Um, in Look up dispersion compensation if you don't know what that is. But that's, that's an inter- that is a really interesting trend. Try and stay away from some of the really nerdy stuff to try and make this relevant. So, But super interesting, super interesting. It is kind of cool to see that the physical layer still matters and there's there's innovations that can happen there. Yeah. Uh, and I will say, if it's not already, hollow core sounds to me like it could be a subgenre of metal music. <laughs> I'm really yeah. into hollow core, man. Sounded like a version of death core, but no core. Sort of like a goth really death depressed. Yes. Yeah, like a really like goth death core sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, VMware has announced the next evolution of the Alibaba Cloud VMware service in which customers of Alibaba Cloud can migrate apps from on-prem VMware environments to VMware environments hosted in Alibaba Cloud. Yeah, uh, we've talked a lot about VMware when it was doing its VMware Cloud on AWS and Azure. We haven't sort of touched on it much in the last, I want to feel, say, for a year. doesn't feel like much has happened since Pat Gelsinger left and the new uh, management team settled in and hasn't done much since, really. It hasn't been too much exciting. Um, so VMware now announcing that it's on the Alibaba cloud uh, and that they've got VMware on there. My gut feel here is that this isn't the full VMware cloud solution. This isn't like a full vCloud deployment on Alibaba. This feels like we've got VMware uh, vSphere on there and you can buy it as a product. This doesn't, if I read between the lines of the announcement, there's a lot missing. Does that make sense? 
It does, yes. Um, we know that VMware is making a lot of efforts to get into you know cloud native uh, Kubernetes support with Tanzu. Uh, I think I did see Tanzu mentioned in here, but uh, it does sound like you know at at the outset this is a standard. I've got VMware on prem. I want to move some workloads into a public cloud, but I don't want to refactor them. So I'm just going to move it into a VMware environment that someone else is hosting, essentially. Yeah, this because the, there's no mention of vSAN, no mention of NSX no mention of, you know, APIs and full orchestration. So it feels like baby steps. And it also, the title also says things like accelerate digital innovation. It doesn't, it's not finished. So <laughs> digital innovation is never finished. <laughs> so, and it's also, but I do think in the larger scheme of things, it's a reminder that the world wants the whole thing, right? So mm -hmm. there's more to the world than just AWS and Azure and what uh, Europe and the US users. Alibaba Cloud is very big in Asia, Africa, and of course in Chinese regions. And that may be the preferred supplier. And our thesis around VMware is they want to be wherever customers are. For sure. Even if it's, and just because, you know, most of the political situation wants to force you onto AWS and Azure these days and stay away from Chinese suppliers doesn't mean that there are not companies in other parts of the world still using those products. And I think VMware has been working hard to get onto the Alibaba cloud, trying to work around the political restrictions here. It might be interesting to see what happens in the future, but you know, Alibaba is a popular public cloud provider, uh, Chinese cloud provider. We know about geopolitics. We know about its impact on, on technology and, and how much it changes and drives the market these days. So this is sort of a reminder of that. I think it's also an indication that this VMware strategy of essentially duplicating a VMware environment, but in the public cloud uh, is working. And I, when they first announced VMware on AWS, I thought, well, that's kind of silly. It sort of defeats the whole purpose of, of public cloud, but apparently it's got legs and now they're expanding it into other clouds, including Alibaba. So yeah, there's an appetite for this kind of design. Yeah, I think so. It feels like um, a lot of companies are saying, well, I want to get into the cloud and I want to use some of the software services that are in the cloud, mm -hmm. but a lot of my other stuff is actually on VMware today. So maybe if I could move my VMware stuff right next to this service I want, you know, like some sort of, you know, data lake or long-term backup, or if I'm using some sort of data recovery solution using my, from my storage array and I'm doing the, you know, for ransomware recoveries and things like that. Uh -huh. And then you think, well, why don't I just move all of my stuff in, you know, all of my VMs into the cloud so it's next to these services and that's my cloud migration strategy set for the next 20 years because as the VMs get replaced with something else, we just shut them down. And, right. You know, viable. It's a viable, you know, it, it's a sucker. It's a sucker's move, but it's one It's expensive, like, but it's viable. Yeah. yeah. It's viable, yeah. All right, our last story for the show. Uh, the British government has updated its rules regarding self-driving cars. Vehicle operators can now, quote, view content that is not related to driving on built-in display screens, i.e., as the register puts it, they can watch TV while the car is in self-driving mode, although for some reason using a mobile phone is still not allowed. Uh, I want to crack a joke here that British driving is so bad that we might as well let them watch television in the car already or something. <laughs> but it's not. As somebody who's been in many places in the world, uh, and driven in a number of different countries, I would say that British motorists are generally reasonably sane. That's not to say they're all good, just generally they're not horrible. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> but uh, it does feel like the British government is trying to get ahead here. Um, they're trying to say, like, we want to see self-driving cars in this country. And so by putting out some laws which sort of embrace a reality instead of saying, no, no TV on our screens, I don't think, I think it actually sort of makes sense in one way. It seems a bit populist maybe. Is it dumb? I think it's, you know, <laughs> I, you know what? I, I, I've got a couple of thoughts on this. One, obviously self-driving cars are not here yet. So it's interesting to see 
laws actually getting out ahead of a technology as opposed to the other way around, which is usually how it goes. I also think lawmakers are assuming that with self-driving cars, people are going to want, want to look at a screen because what else are they going to do? So why not just say, yeah, it's fine, you can do that, uh, mm. instead of making it a question or a hassle or wondering whether they're going to get pulled over because they're watching Netflix uh, as the car is tooling along. Uh, this notion of <laughs> not being able to use your phone, though, I think is is silly because if you're already watching a screen, what does it matter if it's the screen in the car or screen in your hand? Well, arguably the screen in the car is actually in the right place. It's next to the steering wheel and it's integrated into the driving experience. Yeah, and if yes. something goes wrong and you have to take control, then I guess potentially um, that would be better than sort of saying to people, yeah, you can go hands-free, but put your phone in the car and you can watch TV on that. Um, maybe there's Maybe that's the argument. I guess I can see that, but if I'm, I'm already distracted. I suppose if I'm watching the car screen and the car screen, you know, switches away from my Netflix show to tell me, "Hey, you need to take the wheel because an exit's coming up," or you know, yeah. uh, we're running out of signal or whatever, then fine. But I, I just think <laughs> once you tell people you don't have to drive the car, it's it's chaos yeah. and nobody's that, yeah, paying the cat, attention. The cat is out of that virtual bag. Is he? Like, yeah. Telling someone you have to pay attention intermittently is just not successful. It's not going to work. Either drive it or don't. I guess that is my feeling. Mm. All right, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet on networking security in the cloud. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Byte podcast, we're going to get into networking and security. And more specifically, despite what you might have heard about cloud taking over, the network still matters. And in fact, it's essential to an organization's security strategy. And we're going to address this topic with sponsor Fortinet. Our guest is John Madison. He is EVP of products and CMO. Uh, so, John, welcome to the podcast. And, you know, sort of the, the current zeitgeist out there is that the cloud is taking over. So what does this mean for networking? Is the network no longer relevant? So I, think, I think it's more relevant in a way. Um, so, yes, you know, clouds can be very important uh, with a lot of applications moving there and um, a lot of consumption, things like SaaS. And so, um, yes, you know, people, this work from anywhere concept where people are still home and, you know, more in the office these days and some more travel happening. So that's going to be very dynamic. So. How do they get to their applications? They have to get through the network. And um, that network has, be has begun to change as new capabilities come like 5G. And, you know, you'll see these retail sites now that absolutely have to have two or three ISP connections because they, they can't afford any downtime whatsoever. So in our minds, the network is becoming more important because that digital experience between users and even devices these days in, in manufacturing plants and the cloud and the compute uh, is essential to measure and maintain at a high level. Not only that, as that network has expanded and we see more edges, you, you need to have that security as well, totally converged at every one of those edges. So let me push back a little bit on that because I could see someone making a case for saying, yeah, of course we need a network because we have to push the packets into the cloud, but can't I just have sort of a dumb, fast transport and do my security or my performance in other places, like in a cloud location? You can do some of that in the cloud for sure. Um, but what you don't want are these edges, which are open, uh, they're an attack point, uh, not to have any security. So, you know, examples of these edges are, you know, LAN edge and Wi-Fi edge. You've got your WAN edge where you've got direct internet access now, you've got 5G edge, you've got cloud edges. And so... I think it's going to be a hybrid mode for a long time, but the security needs to be at every edge, but in different degrees. You don't have to put the full stack at every edge. You may have a smaller stack, a more firewall-oriented stack at a WAN edge. You may put a web gateway uh, stack at the cloud edge. You may have a NAC 
capability at the LAN edge. And so you're going to apply different security depending on the edge. Okay. Uh, so then that raises the question to me then if I'm, I've got multiple points that I'm trying to secure and probably different kinds of policies, that sounds like kind of a big complicated mess to me. So how do I get my arms around that? Well, I think the convergence is really important. So yeah, so a lot in, in the past, um, you'd build your network, the C, CIO and the VP of network and build this network and then they'd go, oh, well, we'll need to put some security on here and we have to put more security. If you go back, networking was never really built. The internet was never really built with security in mind. The, you know, routers and switches are just making, are just trying to provide the best connectivity. Right. They have no idea about the applications. They have no idea about the content, the users, the location, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why, you know, a separate, almost separate security industry came about to try and fill the gaps for the, for, from a networking perspective. When you start to converge that, so for example, if you've got uh, SD-WAN and the firewall, next-gen firewall completely converged with a single management console, with a single instance from a platform perspective, it becomes much more operationally efficient. So I can apply policy to both. I can manage both. I, I can operate both in terms of, you know, uh, uptime and, and, and change in configuration. That's the key. You can't do an overlay network on these edges. There's too many edges forming. It needs to be converged to get that operational efficiency. So what do you mean when you say converge? You've used that term a couple of times and it can mean different things to different people. What, what is your definition of convergence? Are we talking about networking and security converging? Yes, yes, indeed. And it's, it's, it's tough to do because um, you're building networking for a certain you know, dynamic in terms of high performance. Right. Security always becomes that tax in some ways because it slows things down. And so you got to be very, very careful when you're doing that. And so, you know, good examples are, you know, basic firewalling, safe firewalling, uh, you can do ultra fast. When you start having to do inspection like IPS, you, it doesn't matter what you do, you slow things down. So you do have to be careful. You do have to apply, I would say, different types of processing to, to alleviate that, that issue. And then there's the core operating system itself that needs to have those applications and functions. And so, for example, our, our course, our core operating system, not only is a firewall and SD-WAN, but it also has built-in uh, Wi-Fi controllers and Ethernet controllers, and more recently, zero-trust proxies, for example. Uh, and as we go forward, more functionality, NAC just got added as well. And so that, that convergence happens at a software level, but then you need to be very careful about how you deploy that as an appliance, as a virtual machine, as a cloud native or as a, or a SaaS delivery. Yeah, and I think you raise a point that some listeners might not be aware of. I think most people think of Fortinet primarily as a firewall company, but you do do more than that. And you are, I guess, operating at convergence of security and networking because you've got switches, routers, uh, wireless APs, and so on. And, and all of that is running this one OS, yes? Correct, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to change that image of us being a firewall <laughs> company bit by bit. Uh, we're, we're definitely uh, uh, more of a platform company. Yeah, we've been going 20 years and building on this OS. And what started originally as more of a converged firewall and, and content inspection system has evolved into a, a multifaceted platform that can do a lot of different networking functions, can do a lot of security functions, and can do them together. And so uh, what we call our 40 OS, we had a, re a recent release of 40 OS 7.2, um, has a lot of capability. In fact, I don't really think a lot of our customers use all the capability. So if you think about one of our latest release, yes, I can do next-gen firewall. I can also do SD-WAN 
And, and these are not just kind of add-ons. Oh yeah, you can switch it on, but it's not as good. You know, if you look at the Gartner Magic Quadrants for uh, network firewall, SD-WAN and Wi-Fi LAN, uh, we're a leader in two and a visionary in one. And so, you know, that's hard to do. Uh, become a leader as a standalone function, but it's all the same platform. And so we'll continue to do that. Uh, we're, we're evolving out the zero trust component of it. I think the NAC, a micro segmentation NAC that's native to the switch via the firewall is going to be very important in operational technology environments as the you know as they continue to get attacked with ransomware. So you see um, companies in the networking space that want to move into security tend to do it through acquisition. Um, your approach has been instead of buying and then trying to sort of glom products together, you've built from a common OS and then added capabilities as you went from that OS. So it's, I, I think the goal is then to simplify operations. Is that, that the strategy? Yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely hard to take a mature product it's got a huge install base and customers that uh, was built by separate teams five, 10 years ago and, and put them together. So what usually happens is, you know, networking companies will, even cybersecurity companies will, will buy, make a big acquisition and they'll make a lot of promises how it's all going to be integrated as a platform. And then a few years later, maybe the consoles have got a virtual machine running. So you can see the consoles are on the same hardware, but they don't integrate. <laughs> it's very, very hard to do. And I think this is probably the biggest issue, I think, for platforms is that if you do build it separately, it's, it's, it's extremely hard to bring together correctly. Uh, from our perspective, uh, it's, it's hard still. We build it organically and it's still very hard. Um, but the hardest concept is, is not so much actually the physical or the function or the control capability, whether it be in the appliance or in the cloud, it's the, it's the management console and making that a singular console, an instance that can control or policy, uh, can, can control or configuration is even hard for us. And I, 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 it's impossible if you've got these, just these separate products. The end goal though, uh, both from a networking perspective is and cybersecurity from a networking perspective, operational efficiency to be able to kind of change things really quickly. And of course, have that op time and measured. And we're seeing things like AA ops, we're applying to our consoles for that. On the cybersecurity side, because of the speed now, Log4j was spreading 50 to 100 times faster than its predecessor. Right. And so um, human intervention doesn't matter anymore. You, you absolutely need to automation. And so the ability to put automation capabilities in that redirects traffic or takes endpoints end off the network or, or, or changes the configuration uh, automatically uh, without human intervention uh, is, is very important. Now, when you talk about automation, particularly with networking, I think potential hackles go up because you can, you know, what you're, when you're trying to implement a security control, you could also prevent legitimate users from getting access to the things they need. So how do you balance those, you know, competing interests between security needing to control things and networking needing to connect things? Well, there's always been that, <laughs> that battle there a bit yes. between networking teams and security teams. The most secure network is one that doesn't connect to anybody or anything for sure. And um, so that, that obviously is, is, is the balance. I think that the way you do it is to be pretty sure and, and, and understand exactly um, if you've got some detection capability. And there's a lot of vendors who have detection capability, but they're kind of hesitant or scared to do anything with it because they want to, they want to create a false positive. Mm -hmm. um, and so for us, I'll give you a good example is, you know, over the last two or three, well, maybe the last five or six years, 
we've had sandboxing technology. Quite a few people have sandboxing technology where they take a file out and put it inside a VM and see if it's doing anything bad. It's kind of trying to find unknown versus known threats. Now, when you find that in your sandbox, you go, oh, that's great, I found this file, it's bad. It's already in your network, it's already at the user, so you go and track it down, that's tough. So we have something called inline sandboxing, which will do that um, detection capability, but if it's bad, we'll stop it. So once you become sure, it's the same for IPS signatures or URL filtering. So right. once you become more certain that you're not gonna create that issue in the network, then you can start to do that protection and of course, that's much, much better than allowing it to circulate in your network and then trying to find it later. Can you talk a little bit more about how that inline sandboxing works? Because that's interesting because my understanding of sandboxing was sort of, it was a, let's catch it, examine it. And then if it turns out to be problematic, go have to hunt it down later. You're saying you can do this inline in real time or near real time? Near real time. You know, you have to put a lot of processing power in there as well to do that and yeah. make sure you, you can do it quickly. Um, but yeah, that's been, you know, an issue for, of the industry for a long time. And again, there's, there's, there's hundreds of detection companies out there. Uh, the, the, the key is detection, but also protection. Um, this also comes back, I think we should talk a little bit more about this automation capability because one of the issues with security is that they are getting so much information shot at them from IDS, IPS, alarms, alerts, firewall alerts, and so on. How do you help organizations make sense of that so that they can make the right decision about what steps to take? And, you know, one of the issues that some of the security operations teams are finding is there's so much data. Uh, they're, they're running up these huge expenses from just storing the data alone. Never mind having to sift through it. I've, I've, I saw, I was speaking to one customer who had a 10 million annual bill just for the SIM storage of the data wow. in, in the cloud. And so these are becoming very expensive and it's not going to get less. You know, there's no more microservices. There's more data coming as, as, as our customers convert to more digital so that's one problem. The second problem, of course, is sifting through all of that. And I think, uh, and by the way, the bad guys are using AI technology as well. And so some sort of contextual AI uh, that can look through the data and sift through the data is going to be very important going forward. Again, you just can't, uh, you're not going to be able to do that with humans. Having said that, having said that, I don't want to put humans down too much <laughs> uh, because, um, you know, you still need those humans to kind of, because there's always those not corner cases, there's always situations where you need to kind of think outside of the, the AI box. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're, we're finding a lot of customers, you know, today's employment market is very hard and it's very hard to attract the right talent and then retain, retain the right talent. And so I, I do think the cybersecurity companies need to provide more help as well, more services and more capabilities and more expertise uh, to supplement either the enterprise or the MSSP in providing that capability. So yeah, you, you need the AI capability to sift through all that data, but you're still gonna need some expertise to understand and relate that back to you know how how your employees are working and where, where you can uh, provide better protection. So maybe this ties back into that point about the cloud is, you know, it's not taking, it is, the cloud is becoming essential in one way in that, you know, if you're going to do AI, you need very large data sets and a lot of processing capacity to get useful information out of that data, is that where the cloud comes in for Fortinet? Yes, and so uh, we have the largest installed base of network security of devices and software and instances in the cloud and approaching 600,000 customers as well. And so we get a lot of telemetry back from our systems. Our customers can opt in and provide telemetry. And since we've got such a large installed base uh, across many different geographies, uh, many different types of industry, 
Uh, we process about 100 billion events a day. Huh. And, and that's a huge amount of data. So we kind of break it down. We have to break it down into a hierarchy. So first of all, we kind of look at each threat vector. And uh, let's say files, for example, for antivirus, we'll take those you know, two or three billion good files and two or three billion bad files, put it through what we call our machine learning system. And we come up with a pretty good idea if that's a good or a bad file. We can do the same for URLs and vulnerabilities and other things. And so we've got a pretty good idea of, of, of what's, what's known. What's, what's the bigger issue, of course, is the unknown. Even bigger issue is if you find a piece of the unknown, is it part of a larger campaign? And that's where I think, you know, that's where all the cybersecurity industry vendors trying to get to is to get to that point where I can discover a campaign in the wild before it attacks a specific uh, enterprise or a group of enterprises. And that takes a lot of compute, takes a lot of data. I don't think anybody's really there right now. We, we you know, we start to find pieces of a campaign, uh, but then they have to put it together again. So I think that's the goal. I wish overall, and I've been saying this, I've been in cybersecurity for 20 years now, 10 years of Fortinet. Uh, I wish the cybersecurity industry would stop promoting themselves as being the only person who can stop XYZ and start sharing the information. I, I, there was a recent MITRE testing that happened. And it's a testing of EDR. And it's one of the, I think it's one of the better test methodologies I've seen out there. And it's pretty independent. As soon as the tests finished and the, the results came out, you just saw these vendors saying, "Well, I'm the best because I've got I've got A, and I'm this is I'm the." And it wasn't, "Hey, this can help you as an enterprise." And I wish the cybersecurity industry just would stop this hype and trying to be one up on the other person. I know it's a competitive industry; and you can't say it's not, um, but we need to do better at helping the customers versus saying how good we are versus ABC. Yeah, you won't get any argument from me about that. Okay, so last question and tying back to this notion of, you know, vendors wanting to sort of win every deal or, you know, uh, tout their stuff as the best, which means buy all of our stuff. And Fortinet isn't just, it's got firewalls, it's got uh, switches, it's got APs and so on. So you're obviously trying to capture as much of a customer as you can, but you do also work with third-party systems because you know most places aren't going to be a one vendor shop. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it's, I think it's a really important point to make. Again, I think if you look at networking, it's reasonably standardized. So switch vendors, you know, switch A and switch B will work together. You know, if there's a, an IPS system from vendor A and vendor B, they're not working together. One of the good examples I always cite when I'm speaking to customers is zero trust. So ZTNA and you can't, for ZTNA, you kind of need a client piece. Right. Um, you need a, something that's looking at the agentless stuff. So a, a NAC system, you've got um, a policy engine, You've got um, a proxy enforcement component, which can be in the data center. It could be in the cloud. It could be in the, could be in the SaaS. Uh, you've got identity. And uh, you, there's other pieces as well, by the way, as you go on. And I usually find that, you know, the customers have got nine different vendors. Right. And trying to get them to work is, is not easy at all. And so, but what you can do is say, well, let's, let's take my identity system and my endpoint and my proxy system, and then go work with two or three vendors to get it working. And that's our, that's our intention. So uh, we have provide APIs and connectors that um, allow us to uh, integrate into other, we have 450 um, what we call fabric ready partners that will are built to our API. We built to other people's API. I wish people would provide more APIs. You know, we can only build to the public APIs, mm -hmm. um, but that allows then for again, for the customer to get two or three things working together versus nine. And, and they, they're just very reluctant. They can't just, pull things out of the network. These things 
take years to migrate. And so it has to be the ability to work with other vendors, no, no matter if they're comp competitors, um, because um, large enterprises will at point blank refuse just to rip things out. There needs to be a plan and a migration. All right. Well, that does uh, wrap up our time with Fortinet. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. If people want to find out more about what Fortinet's up to, where should they go? Thank you, Drew, uh, to Fortinet.com. Okay. Nice and easy. Fortinet.com. Uh, again, John, thanks for being with us. And thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. Sponsors make uh, everything that we do at Packet Pushers possible. If you like this podcast and want more fine, free technical information and our community blog, it's all over at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.